Good morning, my name is Michelle Griffith. Our first reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks so much, Dean. Boy, it's good to be with you all. So many old friends. Some of you are a little bit older than you were when we were all together, but, but I am too. <laughs> uh, my wife and I are really thrilled to be here, and I'm trying to find my wife in the congregation. Are you here somewhere? Oh, there you are. I, I never like to preach unless I know where she is. There are lots of different reasons for that. If she does that, then, you know, I get that message. And <laughs> Let me put this book over here because I'm not going to need it but once. Um, last week, Dean said, the only time we have a record of the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, would you please teach us how to do something, was when they asked him to help them learn how to pray. Remember that? And I wonder if we would have ever guessed that when he taught them, he would have begun with the phrase, when you pray, say, our Father. Now, I've been in ordained ministry for over 50 years, and I've heard many, many sad and alarming stories about fathers. You know what I mean? Absentee fathers, self-centered fathers, unfaithful fathers, addicts. Angry fathers, impossible to please. It seems like in our culture, just over the last couple of decades, it's not unusual. And we've, we've, we've said many times, dads are a big problem. Now, that was more true in my generation than the younger generation. You younger dads are doing so much better job. You got a, such a stronger sense of family. But still... I, you got to think that even in Jesus' day, there were, there were problems with fathers. Uh, but very clearly and firmly, he said, when you begin to pray, you say, our Father. And this is because everybody needs a dad. And God can be your father in ways that no earthly father can. It's hard to overstate the importance of having a father in your life. I love Proverbs 17:6. It says the glory of sons is their father. 
Some translations translate it, the glory of children is their fathers. Proverbs 17, 6. That doesn't mean that little boys brag on their dads. Of course they do sometimes. But the glory of sons, glory literally means the weight or the significance or the importance of something. The glory of something is it's truly, if, if it's truly important and significant and weighty. Back in the 60s when I was college, uh, if someone said something particularly important, we'd all say, mm, that's heavy, man, that's heavy, yeah. Well, that, that was a way of saying that's important, heavy, weighty. That's one of the meanings of the word glory. And what that means is the glory of sons as their father is that a good father brings a sense of, I'm not saying mothers don't. In some ways, God is like a mother as well as a father. But a good father, something about him brings a sense of substance, of um, security, of meaning and balance to a child. If you've ever sailed on a big sailboat, you know in the bottom of the boat to keep it on balance is what's called ballast, something heavy, ballast. Well, a good father to a child is like ballast in that little child's sailboat. Without a father, frankly, it's harder. It's not impossible to succeed in life, but it's harder. Now, thankfully, my own family history bears this out. My father died when I was pretty young, but he was a man of great kindness, uh, unusual integrity, a very generous man, responsible, persevering, hardworking. He gave great ballast to my little boat. You see what I'm saying? Now, you might not have had that. Maybe you did. But according to Jesus, we can have that and much more if God is our Father and if we know him that way. Now, it's interesting. We, we actually know the names of several of the apostles. They're given to us. But Christ is saying here, yes, but your real Father is your heavenly Father in heaven, God. Now, Jesus should know this. I mean, if anybody would, what God is like. And here he is teaching us to pray and saying the very beginning of real prayer is getting this, that God is your Father. Now, this tells us plenty. If you want to be able to pray, and if you think prayer is, it matters. If you'd like prayer to be more real in your life, there's nothing more essential than thinking deeply about these two words, our Father. They teach us something precious about ourselves and about God. So, our Father. Okay, first point. Thinking about this raises a difficult question and a remarkable answer. And the question is this How can we possibly call Almighty God our Father? I mean, right off the bat, that's a big problem. Isn't Christ God's only Son? Isn't that what we've said in the creed this morning? I mean, one verse we all know by heart is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son or his one and only son. We just, we just repeated this in the creed a few minutes ago. We said, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. So how can we be children of God, too, if he's the only child? 
Well, there's an amazing answer. It's wonderful. Earlier in the Gospel of John, that same Gospel, we read that we can become sons and daughters of God. I mean, John chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, just listen. He was in the world, speaking of Jesus. Jesus came into the world, but the world, the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. They didn't welcome him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? The children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then it says, they were not, they're not born as children of God, not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Jesus was begotten of God. To beget means, um, it means to bring to life something of the same kind as yourself. Christ is the same being as God the Father. Human beings are created by God, but we're not begotten by God. That's different. We're made by God in his image, but not his children in the same sense that Christ is. The reason I brought this little book is I want to read a quote to you. And uh, this is mere Christianity. Just finished reading this for about the fifth time with three of my college-age grandsons. Probably the most important book I've ever read in my life, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now, I want to read a little bit, and then there's a quote from this. Yeah, I'm going to get to that quote in just a minute, but listen to what he says. He's talking about this question. Uh, what does it mean that Christ is begotten? To beget is to become the father of to create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs, and, which turn into little birds. Now, that's the first thing to get clear, he says. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God. Just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not things of the same kind. And then we get to this verse. It's on your screen. When we come to man, we get the completest resemblance of God that we know of, of all that he's created. There may be creatures in other worlds who are more like God than man is, but we don't know about them. Man not only lives, but loves and reasons. Biological life reaches its highest known level in mankind. But what man in his natural condition has not got is spiritual life, the higher and different sort of life that exists in God and that Christ had something very different. When St. John says that we can become adopted by God as his children, he doesn't mean begotten like Jesus was, but he means adopted. Now, 
but it's, it's more than just like a legal adoption like we experience. Uh, when, when we put our true faith in Christ, God gives us his very spirit. You remember Pentecost when God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all believers? Well, God gives us his very spirit, the life, the spiritual life of God himself. Since then, the spirit of God is given to every believer so that we can experience God's own life in us as sons of daughters have the blood of their parents. If you go, let me just read again. If you go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what Paul says. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then he says in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption. He worked it out before we were even born as sons and daughters through Christ himself, according to the kind intention of God's will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. So he chose us to be his children. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, Don't you know, you Christians, that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, Nobody can even say Jesus Christ is my Lord and mean it unless the Spirit of God dwells in him. When you put your faith in Christ, in Ephesians 1.13, I mean, in Ephesians 1.13, St. Paul says, when you believe the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you've given your life to Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. And the Spirit of God in you is like the blood of your father and mother in you. It unites us to God. I never forgot, it was way back in 1969, I was in seminary and I was working working my way through seminary and I'm mowing the grass for somebody and I was listening to a talk on a cassette tape and it's by an African-American evangelist named Tom Skinner. A lot of you remember Tom. And he said something I have never forgotten. He said, if my neighbors have problems with a black man moving in next door, that's their problem because I'm a son of the king. I'm a son of the king. I never forgot it. Now, St. Paul makes the connection between being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and being adopted by God. This was already read for us a minute ago, so I'll just read a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead, the spirit is alive. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For all who are being led by the spirit, these are the sons and daughters of God. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to be a fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as God's sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. When I grew up, we were using the old Anglican prayer book, Book of Common Prayer. And the catechism is a series of questions and answers. And one of the very first questions it asks you before you are confirmed in the church is, do you really know who you are? And, and the answer that I had to memorize says this. When it says, who are you? You say, well, I was made a member of Christ, the child of God and an inheritor of the kingdom. When I put my faith in Christ, I was made the child of God. Because the old church reformers wanted every believer to be certain of this truth. Here's our most fundamental understanding of ourselves. Someone says, who are you anyways? The first thing is, you know, I'm a child of God because of Jesus Christ, adopted into God's own family. You can't understand who you are until you know whose you are. Does that make sense? If we can just get this, that we are God's children, it gives us a strong sense of ballast in our little boats. It can keep us steady, reliable, balanced, dependable, secure, even when our boat gets shaken in the worst storms that come our way. Okay, so that's the first point. God is our fault. The second point is huge, and and Dean has already mentioned it twice this morning. The the second implication that our Lord wants us to understand when he says, when you pray, you say, our Father, is to, to reflect on this word, our. It's true that everyone who loves Christ is a child of God, but that also means we're family, brothers and sisters. When someone says to you, how many siblings do you have? I say, well, two brothers and one sister. Well, that's right. That's just the beginning. Corky's my brother. Dean is my brother. Mary Ellen is my sister. We're my wife is my sister in Christ. My son has grown up to be my brother in Christ. Ever notice how in the New Testament, especially all the letters of the New Testament use the language of family over and over again. It talks about brothers, sisters, mothers, daughters. So a woman who loves Christ is my sister. Or if she's younger, she's my daughter. Or if she's older, she's my mother. I treat her like my mother. I remember one day when a beautiful young mother and her young husband were sitting in my office, and I was looking at them, and I realized I was to view them as my daughter and my son. It just changes the way we see each other around the room. Men, remember, when you're talking to a a lovely woman, it saves a lot of trouble just to remember that she's family. Yeah, I mean, she's like a sister or a daughter. (laughs) That's the safe way. So the second thing that Jesus says is, When you start to pray, remember, it's not just you and God. It's not just the two of you. But actually, we come to God as a part of family that stretches way back and extends all around the world. So when we pray, we don't just pray for ourselves, but we pray for many, many others. One of the ways I discipline myself on this is every morning when I pray, I pray for persecuted believers in some part of the world. I have a little guidebook that I use. So this week, I was praying for Believers in Bangladesh, Indonesia, uh, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan. 
Now, this truth that we're a part of a large family is a huge blessing, and it can be a complication, too. The blessing is that nobody in Christ is alone. Whether you're single, married, widowed, divorced, orphaned, deserted, you have a family. I mean, unless you just consciously pull back and say, I don't want to have anything to do with anybody else, then you're alone. But you have a family if you want it. You have many others to know you, to love you, to help you when you're in need. This is the greatest blessing on earth of the Christian life, our family. My greatest, one of my greatest gratitudes over the last 50 years is seeing, working with men and women who would come together to help me step into the life of a member of our church who was having real problems and be family to that man or be family to that woman and see that person's life helped, raised up, changed because the brothers and sisters gathered around and they met over and over and over again until whatever it was, marital problems, bankruptcy, children's problems, whatever it was, until we worked through those things with that person. It's the beauty of the family of God. When my kids were in high school at George Mason High School in Falls Church, they had a teacher uh, she taught U.S. history. Her name was Gail. And uh, she was a great teacher, but um, she was really hard on the Christian kids, really hard on them. She would uh, uh, be cynical about their faith. She would stand them up and embarrass them about their faith. I even went to the principal one day and met with her and the principal to complain about this. She was a real loner. Um, she had bad health. She was often sick. And the only people in her life who were there to help her were other teachers at the school. So they would, they would help in any way they could. But she was not easy to love. In fact, she was pretty hard to love, a, 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 tough, a tough lady. My wife and some other mothers had a prayer group that they had started years before, and they met once a week to pray for the school, the teachers, you know, the faculty, the students, just to pray for them. One day, uh, one of the ladies got a call from one of the teachers and said, we know that you ladies pray for our school. Could you, could you we guess you, you care about us. Would, could you help us with things? She says, Gail is in the hospital. She's in and out of the hospital. She's home. She can't take care of herself. We've just busted ourselves until we, we've given all we can. Is there any way you ladies can come along and help? Well, they've been praying for this teacher for a long time. And I said, what? Yeah, sure. And so um, they started helping her. They'd take turns doing the things you need to do when somebody has to go to the hospital, is alone, feels bad, needs food, needs transportation, and all that stuff. They, they found it difficult, but they tried to love her in concrete ways. They didn't talk to her much about the Lord, but they just tried to love her. One, one Sunday morning, on the very back row of our big old church over there, I saw that school teacher sitting on the back row. I couldn't believe it. The next week she was there, and she had moved up a pew. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. She started worshiping in our church. And immediately, other teachers at the school, began to question her. What are you doing at that, that conservative church? What are you doing with all those fundamentalists, all those snake handlers over there who believe the Bible? Are you crazy? And you know what she said? 
She said, I, I don't know if they're crazy or not. I don't know about the snake handling, but all I know is those people have loved me like nobody else has ever loved me. I found out she'd grown up in a Catholic family with a, a, a very abusive father. It had been, he was a great hypocrite. This was the view of religion she had had, so it's no wonder she became a part of the church family. People began to surround her and love her. She's never easy to love. She's dead now. But we saw her grow into a real sister in our family. This is the second thing God wants us to know, that we're a part of a family. Listen, uh, listen to just what, how Jesus... Uh, no, save all that a minute. I just want to say this. Your job as a church is to help new people come to know and love others in this church. That's your job. Now, the complication that I said, I said there's a blessing and a complication about being family. The complication is we have an obligation to grow into rich, caring relationships in the church, and they can be messy sometimes like they were with Gail. They're not always easy, but believe me, the blessings of deep relationships Close relationships in the family of God far outweigh the periodic changes. So that's the second big thing to be said, our Father. But finally, the third idea is about this idea of God as our Father. What is the meaning of Father, the way Jesus uses this word? You see, Jesus is teaching us that God is not just some remote deity, but he's our very own Father. And this isn't really easy for us to comprehend, I don't think. Whenever Jesus was speaking personally, with one exception, he always seemed to refer to God as his Father or our Father. You know what that one exception was when he spoke to God and he didn't call him Father? Anybody know? It's when he was on the cross and the darkness came and he didn't sense the presence of God anymore. And that's when he said... My God, why have you forsaken me? That's another sermon. <laughs> now here, I want you to listen to how Jesus emphasizes the, this about God being our Father. In Matthew chapter 6, where the Lord's Prayer is, the very end of the Lord's Prayer, he says, if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 18, you will be seen when you are praying by your Father who sees in secret. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? Verse 31, don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How will we clothe ourselves? All the Gentiles are eagerly seeking these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Did you know that in the Gospel of John, God is referred to as Father over a hundred times, 20 short, 21 short chapters. You think that's an accident? No, it's not an accident. He's wanting his disciples to get this unbelievable truth. God is your Father. Father. And finally, in John 16, verse 26, it's as though Jesus gets a little exasperated. And he, this is my paraphrase, but he says, look, don't you get it? You don't need me to pray for you. 
because the Father loves you. (laughs) Psalm 139 says he's known you since you were born. He's known our every thought, our every concern, our every need. Psalm 103 says as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There's something very special about this. The, uh, the early believers, the early church members, had a special word that they used, an unexpected word, which they used in praying to the Father in heaven. Now, you know, they, they, they spoke um, Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek or Latin. They spoke different languages. But you remember in Romans 8, Paul said, when we receive the spirit of adoption, we could begin to call God Abba, Father. Now, where did he get this term, Abba? I'm sure you've all heard of it. Paul got it from Jesus. It seems that this is the way Jesus addressed his heavenly Father. He called him Abba. It's a very tender word, Abba. Maybe you know this. It's a nursery word. It's it's one of the first words that a little child learns to address to her father. It's like Mama. Dada, or in Swahili, Baba, or uh, Ima. Uh, it's, it's a word of deep endearment, intimacy, uh, dependence. It's a, it, it implies a world of heartfelt, tender, close, intimate, caring love. Abba, dear father. Now, that's a term that only a child can use with her dad. I remember... Uh, Several years ago when we lost our church and we lost our house, we lost everything, and um, uh, we didn't know where we were going to live. And my son-in-law's in in real estate, and he found this little house right around the corner from their house. And he he came to me and he said, John, I I think we've figured out a way that you can get this house. I think we can work it out. And I think it was just 200 yards away from them, and I, I, I looked at them and I said, this would be wonderful. I would love it. But... Really close to you all. Do you really think you want us to be that close to you? Never forgot what my daughter said. She said, Oh, Dad. Oh, Dad, of course. I know I'm going to have to take care of you one of these days. I might as well start getting used to it now. Because we belong to each other. She's my daughter. I'm her dad. She could say that. You belong to God, your father. He's your Abba. (laughs) When you open your heart in true faith, God sent his spirit. The spirit wants very much to teach you that God is your Abba, father. You're his own child. You belong to him. Now, we think when Jesus was teaching the Lord's prayer and he said, you pray our father, we think that he used the word Abba. Because he spoke Aramaic, and that's the word that means father in Aramaic. Even though all the New Testament, when you read it, even though Jesus spoke Aramaic, the New Testament is all in Greek. So you don't see this word very often because the Aramaic is translated into Greek. The Greek word is pater. But we're pretty sure Jesus always used this word when he addressed his father. Now, I expect many of you know about this word Abba, and you you might have known that it has that nursery meaning, but there's more to it. I'll bet you didn't know this. I didn't know this until recently. Abba is not just a word of sweet, tender, grateful affection, 
but it's the, at the same time, it's not a chummy word. It's a word of deepest respect and desire to be respectful and obedient and submissive. Not out of obligation, not because I have to, but out of gratitude, reverent love. Even today in Israel, where they speak Hebrew, this is the word that's used by children, Abba. And it means tender love, but at the same time, it means great respect. You know, in the Anglican service of Holy Communion, the time comes just before we pray the Lord's Prayer when the minister says these words. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. The minister says, and now as our Savior Christ taught us to pray, we are bold to say our Father. Why are we bold to say our Father? It means because it's an awesome, unexpected thing to be able to call awesome, almighty God our Father. So we say it with great reverence. You know, Islam violently rejects this idea of God as Father. Uh, There's nothing in Buddhism like this idea. It's a bold thing to call God Father. We would never dare to be so presumptuous to call God Father unless he's invited us to do so. So it's a word of deep affection and great respect. You see this in the parable of the prodigal son. You you know that story. When the son thumbs his nose in the face of the father, demanding all of his inheritance, the father gives it to him, lets him leave, leaving all his relationships, all his responsibilities behind. And, And we know how badly that turned out for him. Terrible. But then he finally realizes what a fool he's been. And how he has hurt and offended his dad and his family. And he disrespected them so terribly. But he thinks, maybe if I crawl back on my hands and knees and just beg my father, maybe he'd let me work in the fields and have a hut somewhere that I could live in. And then, of course, when he gets there and he's about to apologize to his father, his father comes running to him. He wraps his arms around him. Says, welcome home, son. Wow. That's that combination of respect and affection that we get in the word Abba. The boy had no idea how much his father loved him. So we come to the Heavenly Father with the greatest respect and at the same time remembering he's our Abba, whose love never comes to an end. There's just one other thing about Abba that I want you to know. And we see it in that parable, but we also see it in the life of Jesus. And what it is, is that in the most hardest, uncertain hour of our lives, that's when the word Abba means the most to it. And you see it in the life of Jesus when he was in great need. When he was in great need, he went to his father, Abba. Now, when you know God as your Father and you're filled with His Spirit, this is what you want as well. You don't just want His help. You want to please Him. You want to obey Him. And we always find this dual sense of love and respect. But also, being God's child doesn't mean we have an easier life. doesn't mean we have fewer problems, fewer disappointments. It doesn't mean you're going to have any Uh, less hardships than anybody else. 
What's different about God's children is that when these terrible losses and times of pain come, when we're crying in grief and pain, we cry differently. Believers cry differently. And that's the last thing about this word, Father, I want you to see. Jesus wanted us to know that there's never, ever a time in your life when you can't come to the Father in prayer. And God wants to be the Father that you may never have had. God knows that most of us struggle with feelings that we can never measure up to God. He knows that. Most of us feel that way. And it doesn't matter. When we begin to grasp how much he loves us, we who are totally undeserving, and we decide to walk with Christ for the long haul, something happens. We, we begin slowly to change, and we begin to be more like him, more obedient to God. I just want you to listen to one other little passage that I think helps us understand about coming to God in a time of great pain. This is the last night of Jesus' life. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They went out, and uh, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. He began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He went a little farther beyond them and fell to the ground and began praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And this is what he was saying. Listen to the words. What he prayed was, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. If it be thy will, please take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. This is the hardest, most difficult moment in his life. And so what does he do? He cries out to his Abba Father. He cries out in love, in respect. I only want to do your will, but he cries out in pain. When you know God is your Father, he, you can come to him in your deepest moments of pain. There is never a time when you can't come to him and call him your father. So I need to wind this up. Let me just close with this last thing. Um, my dear, wonderful, amazing wife was really hard to raise. She was uh, strong-willed, opinionated, just pretty rough on her younger brothers and sister. And I'll just say, some, she wasn't a bad job. Let's just say sometimes she needed some wise and loving discipline. You know what I mean? I guess in her calmer moments, maybe she probably realized even as a child that she was pretty tough to raise. <laughs> so she has told me over and over again that her most precious, treasured memory from childhood is on certain special times when her dad would say, come here, crawl up in my lap. And he'd hold her in her lap, and he would look at her, and he'd say, Susan, I love you. I love you so much. She knew she wasn't easy to leave, love, so she, she, she tells me she would say, why, Daddy, why do you love me? 
And he would look at her and say, I love you because you're mine. Well, why, Daddy? Why? Because you're mine. Now, that's our Heavenly Father. Why does he love us? Just because we're his. Just because we're his. We don't have to do anything, accomplish anything, be anything. He just loves us. Of course, he wants us to grow and change and mature and become more like Christ. But his love is completely unconditional. So I just want to ask you this morning, is there anything you think God wants to say to you out of all this? What might he want you to get? What might God be saying to you? Maybe he's saying this. I know you. I have always known you. I've known all the things in your life. I've known all your achievements. I've known your failures. I've known your griefs. I've known your shortcomings. I've known about the times you've been treated unfairly and when people have judged you wrongly. I know about the things that you don't want any other soul in the world to know. I know it all. And I love you. I love you dearly. I'm your Abba Father. But why? How could you love me? Just because you're mine. Let's just be still for a moment. Pray quietly. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are. 